0: Welcome to Trending in Education, Mike Palmer here, excited today to be joined by Karen Costa, who's a faculty development facilitator. She's been defending online learning, which I have been a bit surprised, has been taking a bit of a beating lately, so I'm happy to hear what she's talking about there. We also might talk a little bit about trauma-informed education along the way, but before we get to any of that, I want to welcome Karen to the show. Karen, welcome to Trending in Education.
1: I'm really happy to be here. These are interesting, exciting, and timely topics. So I am i can't wait to get into it.
0: Yeah, dare I say they're zeitgeisty.
1: and uh, And yeah,
0: so let us hear your story in your own words. What got you to this point in your professional life? Spin us a yarn, Karen. Let us know how we got to, to this point in your career.
1: Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I got into higher education in 2002, I believe I started working at a college access program. It was a gear upfront funded program. I worked in a high school in Newport, Rhode Island and a lot of people associate Newport with immense wealth. And I was working in a high school where 80% or more of students had to qualify for free or reduced lunch. Mm-hmm. And my job was to help these amazing high school students gain access to college and I started to go on college tours with them. That was one of the things that we did. And I just loved being on college campuses. I was just like, uh, I love my students. I love my job, but I want to be on a college campus. And I also recognize that access is only part of the equation. We've also now got to help students succeed once they get into college. And I noticed that some of my students that wasn't true. They would work so hard to get their foot in the door. They would graduate, they would get accepted, they would figure out the very complicated financial aid process, and then they wouldn't persist after their first year. And that made me really angry. So I enrolled in a higher ed program and, you know, started working in higher ed soon after that, started in a community college. That was really where I learned uh, the fundamentals of the work that I continue to do and ended up then transitioning from student affairs, I was the director of student success into an adjunct role, teaching um, first year experience courses. And that has now transitioned more and more. I've been working with faculty to support them in their teaching and as humans and helping them to really identify what does faculty success mean? Mm -hmm. And a lot of that has overlapped with online learning, online education, online pedagogy. I'm one of those interesting people who was working fully remote pre-COVID. Right. And I just, it works for me for a lot of reasons because of, you know, some uh, health issues I have and I have ADHD. So from the perspective of disability, the flexibility that I get from working from home, working remotely is, is amazing. Yeah. So I'm really drawn to these online modalities. And to this day, I continue to teach as an adjunct and do a lot of my... You know, all of my faculty development development work happens online as well.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So that brings us to how we connected. So this is a reason why if you're putting out stuff on Twitter, those <laughs> signals can get picked up by other humans out in the world. And it's been a very transformative time for all of us. But there was the, the forcing function of the first wave of the pandemic where everybody suddenly had to get online. I've heard it referred to, we've talked about it on the show as emergency response teaching. It was like a crisis. We had no choice. We had to go online. Everyone was suddenly thrown online. I've also referred to this as the great stampede where, you know, people were not peacefully migrating. They were just thrown (laughs) into it and it was a bumpy ride and people were juggling a lot of challenges through that first wave. We've gone through an entire academic calendar since then. We're now halfway through the next one the years are are building upon one another and another trend we've talked about on the show is the great snapback where there's this desire to just go back to the way things were because we ain't got time for that everybody's exhausted we just want this stuff to be over all that is building up surprising foment people are upset about online learning to the point where I think the pendulum has pushed too far in the wrong direction. I learned this by, in part from you, Karen, this is something you've been putting out to the world. Can you share with us a little bit of your perspective on what's happened to the perception of online learning over the last couple of years?
1: <laughs> I'm laughing because it's just, it's, it's, uh, it's so big. There's a lot of layers to this. So you know, absolutely. There was a a stampede is, um, is an accurate way to describe it. That said, so I was actually just looking at some data on this. As of 2013, there were 5 million college students who were taking at least one online course and 3 million who were fully online. So in terms of this idea that, you know, we all had to migrate rapidly from face-to-face to this emergency remote teaching. I think it's important to put that into the context that millions of students pr- prior to that were, l- were learning online. Yep. We don't know, <laughs> I've advocated for this, we don't know ex- quite exactly how many faculty were teaching online prior to, uh, you know, March 2020, the Great Stampede. I was one of them. Many thousands of faculty were previously teaching online and doing a really good job of it. So a book I can recommend that I think is important for folks to give some context to this is called Minds Online. Mm. And the author's name is Michelle Miller. As we say here in Massachusetts, she's wicked smart. And she does a fantastic job of, of going through the research on online learning, which shows that when done well, it is as effective and in some cases more effective mm-hmm. uh, for student learning and success than traditional in person uh, learning. So, if folks are looking for just really great research, Minds Online is an excellent book that I recommend all the time. Yeah. So, imp- important context there. You know, online learning was done really well. Of course, March 2020 hits, and everybody who, you know, all of the millions of students and faculty who had signed up to teach in person were then forced to teach online and those folks you know number 1 didn't didn't choose that right so there's a big difference between choosing to take or teach an online course and being forced to do it in an emergency situation and you know from a faculty perspective these folks did not have training education around online pedagogy, which is, you know, great teaching is great teaching and teaching online is very different than teaching in person. So what we saw was that folks were were really struggling. That said, a lot of people, uh, my fellow online education folks stepped up and, you know, offered people a ton of support. Mm -hmm. So I ran in the summer of 2020 uh, with some colleagues of mine at online learning toolkit, we ran a boot camp and we brought in uh, hundreds of faculty to teach them about online learning. And they did a great job with it. And they started using it in their classrooms and it was going really well because they got the appropriate support. So when done well, right, that's Mm -hmm. the key here. Online learning um, with the appropriate training, support, education, online learning is as effective, if not in some cases more effective than in-person learning. Yeah. Um, so the backlash, now here comes the backlash. The backlash is that what's going on here is that we're seeing uh, you know, a mental health burnout crisis in students and faculty. Mm-hmm. And there is this desire to address the cause of that. And because remote learning happened at the same time, it's being used as a scapegoat. There's no data that shows that remote or online learning causes mm-hmm. any of these mental health challenges or learning challenges that we're seeing. There is a, a massive amount of data that chronic stress, trauma, and perhaps we'll get more into the trauma stuff, toxic stress, chronic stress, trauma, burnout, those all, again, massive amounts of data that those impact our ability to learn and they impact our mental health. Yeah. So, you know, the idea that people are associating these challenges that we're seeing with remote learning mm-hmm. um, or online learning instead of with the global pandemic right. that is wreaking havoc in society, mm-hmm. you know, makes you wonder. And right. Right. If, you, if you follow that wonder, what you find is that, and I think this is really important, you know, our economy is based on this idea that, you know, people can go to work because their kids go to school. Right. And at the K through 12 level, which, you know, a lot of the backlash is happening there. Yeah. And that and that said we got to be developmentally appropriate here. So a college student learning online and a kindergartner learning online is not the same conversation. Right. However, what we're seeing here is that online learning is disrupting this system that we have chosen and created mm-hmm. where students go to school And parents go to work. And both of those have been challenged. Both of those existing structures have been disrupted. So we're often having conversations, I think, about the the nature of our economy. Yeah. And people are sort of implying or blatantly stating that it's a pedagogical issue. Right. And it's not in many cases. So we've got, again, lots of data that online learning can be done when done well works. Right not necessarily the same for every student in every age group. It's got to be developmentally appropriate. Right. We've got lots of data that it works. What I think is happening is that there's a lot of this backlash is people who are trying to protect the status quo and protect this system that we have created within our economy. Yeah. So it's, my job is to say, let's let's go back and look at the the data on this pedagogy and remind people that correlation does not equal causation.
0: There you go. I like that. There's lots to chew on in in all of that. And I think part of it is another trend we've looked at is parent educators and the role that parents are playing in their children's educational lives. Parents, they can't ignore what's happening when their kid is in their living room going to remote school they can think about other things, focus on other things when their kid is in a physical school building. So I think the way in which parents were exposed to their children's educational lives when they were under all this stress and there was this transition happening and parents were also juggling that transition at the same time. I think we all kind of agreed we would get a pass on the spring of 2020, (laughs) but then this whole period has now stretched out you know, another year and a half on top of that. And then also why I find online learning, I find a lot of hope in online learning is that it gives us a level of resilience when done right, that we haven't had before. So that in the event that it makes sense for kids to study from home again, we're seeing it increasingly in higher ed, K-12, I think we're seeing more resistance. There are times when it'll make more sense from a public health perspective, from a convenience perspective, from even efficacy and and certainly access, you know, students all around the world get access to online learning. It's much harder to get them onto a physical campus, you know, in a a safe and wonderful place. Can you talk a little bit about that dimension, how online learning is giving us a lot of long-term benefits that... I am viewing this backlash as as somewhat temporary, although it does have some real-life implications in terms of how policy is set, and, and maybe we'll get into that next. But, but can you talk a little bit about where online learning gives us hope and actually gives us a little more resilience, and, and maybe we aren't spending enough time recognizing that positive aspect of the story?
1: Absolutely. Some of the examples of students that I've worked with in my career, uh, one of my favorites I had a long haul truck driver who would, you know, drive all night and then he would log in from the cab of his truck. He had Wi-Fi access and he would log in to classes to take my online course. Yeah. So how would this student, how would this learner have been able to participate in traditional or in-person education? He wouldn't have. And a lot of people were fine with the fact that he wouldn't have, and still are. And he was able to pursue and earn his college degree. So, you know, lots and lots of students, pregnant students, parents of young kids Mm -hmm. who, for whatever reason, need to be in the home, taking online classes, and they would not have otherwise been able to do so. I was one of those students. I did one of my last degrees I started it when he was six weeks old, finished it when he was two and a half. Yeah. Um, no way I would have been able. I was also working full time. Could Would not have been able to succeed in a traditional setting. What we've seen during the pandemic, this effect has really been magnified. So lots and lots of stories, particularly of students with disabilities who were able to access and engage in their education, in a new way that they weren't able to do with that in-person setting. So one of the affordances, that word is really important and you'll see it in that book I mentioned, Minds online. One of the affordances of online learning. So let's throw out the idea that online learning is what you do if you can't do in-person learning. The word affordances invites us to say, what can I do online that I can't do in-person? How is online better, right? Mm -hmm. And flexibility, you know, the flexibility of online learning is one of its affordances. So I, for example, to take this out of education, right before we got together, I was in a telehealth appointment with my doctor who, you know, she's doing a lot, as many healthcare providers are, happened to be a half hour late, right? So two years ago, I would have been sitting, waiting in her office. It would have disrupted my work. Mm -hmm. It would have disrupted my mental health.
0: We might not have gotten this podcast episode together.
1: Absolutely. Because, because I, I really, I, with the travel time, I wouldn't have been able to be here on time. So the flexibility of online learning, particularly for people with chronic health issues and disabilities Mm
0: -hmm. is
1: uh, one of its incredible affordances that we saw sort of ramped up. As somebody with ADHD, the fact that I can take breaks as I need to, that I can have snacks when I need to, that I can get up, you know, there's just, there's so many aspects of this online remote learning and work for my health and ADHD that are really better supported by learning online. Yeah. I'll also mention, I cannot tell you how many, I've taught thousands of students now. I started teaching online in 2006. Wow. Every term, I teach their first term course, their first time as a college student, first time learning um, as an online college student. So many students tell me about stories of not feeling safe in the in-person environment, being bullied in the in-person environment. And they are just, they come alive and find that sense of safety and inclusion through online learning in ways that they were never able to do in the in-person environment. Yeah. So we've got so many affordances. The other one is, you know, one of my favorites is some people call total participation. When I work with faculty who work in person, they'll say they lead class discussions to get students engaged. And I'll say, oh, was every student engaged in that discussion? And they'll say, no, well, you know, no, Karen, you know, some students volunteer, they had the option to volunteer. So in a classroom of 30 students in a you know, quote unquote class discussion, you might hear from five students, right? The other 25 are sitting there passively, maybe listening, maybe zoning out. Yeah. In an online course. So, for example, I just started a, an online course this week introductory discussion. Every single student engaged with me. Every single student participated and engaged with me. Yeah. Every single student engaged with their peers. Mm-hmm. Every single student engaged with the course content. Total participation in my online courses. So that's yeah. not always something we can get to in our in-person courses. Not that in-person does not does you know it has value. I don't sure. want to, you know, people will be mad at me. Well, no matter what I say, they'll be mad at me. But it certainly has value. It's just so does online, and online is is great for so many learners.
0: Yeah, I, I like where you're going there too. Don't snooze on the power of an active chat. You know, uh, there a ways oh. in which chat can be. A really powerful tool. And it is a reminder that these new formats are emerging that can allow for levels of engagement, chats and polling when done well, you know, which is is something we keep coming back to. But when it's integrated in a way that makes sense, breakouts, another one that you really can't do without it becoming awkward generally in a, a physical setting that are a lot easier to do online. I think all those things certainly make a lot of sense in terms of designing it in a more thoughtful and engaging way. And then actually having everyone feeling that sense of safety and inclusion, which we all know is is so important nowadays. I did want to get into the trauma informed thing next, but before sure. we do, I wanted to get a quick note from you on, on hybrid and the blending of online and in-person because they are treated as polar opposites to different camps. When in reality, a lot of students who are attending their higher ed experience, they're going to college in person, they're still taking some classes online. And in that sense, the whole experience is hybrid. The LMS is online. So they're going to have to be checking into some digital presence anyway. And then things get into high flex and it gets more and more interesting how people are are designing these things. But what's your thought on the distinction between online learning and in person and then how, how hybrid and other blends fit into the equation?
1: Sure. I guess I'll, I'll mention here: these words are just, you know, I'm so careful with terms like face to face, right? We are face to face right now. We're in Zoom, mm-hmm. and a lot of folks are using face to face to represent the in person traditional modality. Right. We're we're at a distance right now, but are we not in person? I'm not here in robot. I'm right. I'm myself. Mm-hmm. So some of those terms that have gotten tossed around and all mixed up and our our heads are spinning hybrid and high flex blended it's all <laughs> i have a piece that i'm working on called the modality mush and it's nice. just it's a lot to process so a couple things that that come to mind the first thing that comes to mind is what is the world <laughs> or the future that we are educating our college students whatever their age might be many of my college students are in their 50s 60s What is the world or future that we are educating them for? So uh, on what planet (laughs) are we going to argue that people don't need online learning skills or online facilitation skills or online meeting skills? This idea that there should be some pure form of traditional in-person education without any of those elements is just baffling to me, right? I always try to come back to that question, What world are we trying to create here? Mm-hmm. And I certainly want to create a world where the students, learners that I work with are gaining online skills. whether that's through taking one online course and, you know, their other three are in person, whether that's taking fully online courses, whether that's doing online learning experiences outside of education. Those skills are truly twenty first century, skills that will prepare folks for the future. Yeah. The other thought that comes to mind is there's some articles that came out this week about this. We've got to keep in mind when we're designing from a learner experience design perspective, not only what is the, the best design choice here for our students, but also what is the best design choice for our educators, whether that's teachers, staff, librarians, tutors classroom faculty. Mm-hmm. One of the things we're seeing is that the hybrid high flex models that were forced onto a faculty starting in March 2020 and done during a raging global pandemic with very little time, very little support, no course releases, just you have to do this, figure it out because we feel it's what's best for students is really problematic. I can say this, burning out your educators is not good for students.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> there are promises to HyFlex and I tease HyFlex and ha- express a lot of concerns about it. And I don't like how it was handled. I don't like that it was really done in a way that harmed, really, really harmed educators. That's not good for educators and that's not good for students. Yeah. So, you know, I would just invite people to remember the context, which is Raging global pandemic. Yeah. You know, we need to be more strategic and helping people prioritize what really needs to get done right now. We need to be putting well being, mental health first, always, every single time. And some of those models right now, the way they're being used is done um, in a way that's detrimental to both faculty and students. And there's a lot of promise in those models as well.
0: And then that does bring me more to the trauma informed point, particularly from the perspective of the educators. Who have been another front line in this response to the pandemic where, you know, classes generally continued to run. If they had to fail over to online, they did. And then when many times the policy switched back to now we have to be in person, faculty didn't have a lot of uh, agency in that conversation. They had to go with, uh, roll with those punches. Although you do see in the walkout in Chicago's school system as an example of a place where, Teachers are also organizing to defend themselves and protect their rights. But it is a very complex time and being more of an advocate for the noble profession that teaching is, being able to understand and empathize and provide the same grace that we're asking our educators to convey to their students. How do we begin from a place where we're giving our educators that grace uh, and empathy To begin with, you also have experience in trauma-informed. Is that the right terminology? Trauma-aware? Trauma-aware instruction? Maybe you can help us navigate some of the language around this as well. But that is a place where, since a lot of what you're doing is working directly with faculty, I imagine the the being trauma-aware, trauma-informed, when working with educators, you have to begin with awareness that they may be going through a lot during these times as well.
1: Yeah. Great opportunity to pivot to that conversation. So I do use the term trauma aware teaching, trauma aware education in the literature on trauma and its impacts on education. There's a model called the Missouri model. Folks can Google Missouri model trauma and you'll come across that. Basically, the idea is that the trauma aware organization is one in which people are just starting to understand what trauma is and how it might impact their school or institution. That's trauma aware. Trauma-informed is on the other end of the spectrum. And it is, it's what we're working toward. I see. And a trauma-informed school or institution is one in which every decision involves a conversation and an awareness of how might trauma and its impacts influence the decision we're about to make. How does trauma that's showing up in our students and educators' lives? show up you know in what they bring to campus whether that's online or in person what's going on on campus that might be causing trauma campuses are also they're not these immaculate perfect pure places where we go to avoid trauma trauma is happening on our campuses and in our classrooms as well so a trauma-informed campus Really weaves that awareness into every decision. So that's what we're working toward. I see. So I don't use that term a lot, trauma informed, because to me that's in the that's way in the future. Because most campuses and schools aren't even you know trauma aware yet. The folks that I work with are just starting their journey, and which is great. You know, it's not a bad thing. We start where we are. Yeah. I just think it's important to recognize that spectrum, mm-hmm. and. So a trauma aware educator is somebody who asks the question, how does trauma impact my learners? How does it impact their ability to succeed and how does it impact me? How does it impact my teaching and the work that I do primarily with faculty, but also with staff, staff are really important. So we want to include them in the conversation. I sometimes tend to then lean toward the word educators so that everybody's at the table. Mm-hmm. So the work that I do with educators is to help them, first of all, define trauma and to know what it is, right? We got to name things before we can do something about them. And then to start to get curious about the way that the trauma response shows up in the classroom. So examples of, of that are difficulty focusing, difficulty with time management. So students or educators who who are experiencing trauma and are having a trauma response might really have a tough time concentrating, right? So the lecture model really becomes inaccessible to folks who are, you know, going through trauma reactions. Relationships are really very much impacted by the trauma response. So somebody who's experienced trauma might react to what is meant to be a benign comment and get really, really upset by that and in the faculty-student relationship, we, we can see how that could really impact the learning environment, right? Yeah. Um, so if a trauma-aware educator learns to treat themselves with respect and, of course, to have healthy boundaries and to never accept unacceptable behavior, however, they also learn to not take things personally and to recognize that a student's response to them might have nothing to, probably doesn't have anything to do with them. You know, it's the student working through something. Mm -hmm. So we explore those in the work that I do with faculty. We explore those trauma responses, particularly not from a clinical point of view. We're not therapists. 99% of the time, the faculty I work with aren't therapists. Some of them are, I'm not a therapist, but we come at this from the, the standpoint of how does this impact our teaching, our pedagogy? Mm-hmm. And a lot of people say, well, that's just great teaching. And I say, Yeah, you're which, you know, you're already doing trauma aware pedagogy in a lot of cases. Things like chunking lots big content into smaller pieces, yep. giving students structured note-taking to support them or any type of external structure to support those executive functions is really important. Compassion, empowerment. I heard the word agency before. Agency is just, ooh, it's so important and trauma aware worked. Mm-hmm. We never From a trauma-aware perspective, we never are trying to force our decisions or our experiences onto somebody else. We are always respecting the agency of our students and our faculty. And, you know, to circle back to that idea of faculty burnout, when I leave these sessions of trauma-aware teaching, Mm -hmm. the message I always give to people is the number one thing you can do right now, educators, is to figure out a way to ramp up how you're going to take care of yourself. Mm -hmm. And we go through practical strategies of how to support students. At the end of the day, the number one thing that educators can do is to find a way to take care of themselves. Mm -hmm. That might be, you know, self-care, exercise, meditation. It might be therapy. It also might be speaking truth to power. It also might be raising your hand in a meeting when someone has just made an ableist remark or you know, somebody has said something that denigrates online education. It might be raising your hand and saying, I don't agree with that, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that can be a form of self-care to help address burnout. So speaking up for ourselves, speaking truth to power, you know, holding on and grasping our agency wherever we can. Those to me are really the most important parts of being a trauma-aware educator.
0: Yeah, it makes sense. It reminds me, you know, on the the airplane, they, they tell you to put the oxygen yeah, mask yeah. on yourself first. So, yeah. you know, make sure you're okay. And then it also does speak to when you're not okay, it's more likely the impact will be a lot worse, where if you're not in control, it's not a good time to be dealing with kids who are also probably facing, who knows what they're facing out in the world these days. Karen, if folks want to learn more about what we're talking about, where's the best place for them to find you and find what you're talking about?
1: My website is 100faculty, the number Mm 100faculty.com. And... I've got lots of free resources, articles I've written and um, podcasts I've done about trauma aware teaching. I have a self-paced online course that I created with Online Learning Toolkit with the intention of, you know, I do a lot of the standalone workshops. It's a lot to fit into an hour. It's a pretty big topic. So I did create a self-paced online course that people could do on their own time at their own pace. It's a heavy topic of course. Yeah. And you know, in recognition that faculty are really hungry for this content and it's a way to support educators and students. So those are all on my website, 100faculty.com.
0: Awesome. Yeah, and, uh, and good follow on Twitter as well, which is where I, I was tracking some of what <laughs> Karen's been putting it. We'll share all that as part of this episode. Now looking ahead, we are a trend spotting show. What do you see on the horizon? You know, it does feel like there was this initial slam. Everyone had to get into online learning, probably an overreaction, hopefully. And and the backlash subsides perhaps over time. Folks, at least in their work lives, getting back to your previous point, are getting much more comfortable with a lot of this technology. So to me, it makes perfect sense that we want students who are being educated to be using the same tools that they're going to use when they're in a workplace in the future, any perspective on where any of these themes might be headed? Any new trends on the rise that you think folks should be paying attention to?
1: (sighs) I tell the folks I work with, I aim to tell the truth about the hard stuff. And hope is, hope is a, a radical act. And I, I think hope is really important to focus on, you know, what can we do? one of the things i've been t- telling folks i don't believe that there is such a thing as post pandemic my understanding i am not a climate action expert but my understanding is that pandemics are one of the symptoms of the climate change that we are now you know very much experiencing and that this sort of instability whether it's through pandemics or hurricanes or heat waves or floods.
0: Yeah, there, there was a volcano that erupted in the yep. Pacific causing yep. tsunamis. It's just a new flavor of, yep. uh, of something.
1: Right. So th- that kind of instability is something that we need to plan for. So I don't see the need for uh, responsive, flexible pedagogy, responsive, flexible modalities. I don't see that going away. I don't see that fading away and going back to the way it was. You know, I think that that backlash, you know, that we've seen, I think time is, and reality to some extent is going to address that. So my message to online educators has, has been stay the course you are needed. You will be increasingly needed mm-hmm. and, you know, speak truth to power and speak up for online education and students and, and educators and understandably so. Reality is really difficult right now. So I have empathy for people who who want to deny it. Absolutely. But the reality is increasing instability. So I'm really interested in design choices that focus on, <laughs> I'll go back to that word, reality, the reality of our students' lives, our educators' lives, meeting people where they are. So designing and teaching, not for some ideal or some fantasy. So much magical thinking out there, right? But designing for the real, the real students that we have in this moment. And I would just encourage, again, our online, <laughs> our online educators to say the course. To all of our educators, of course, you're doing such important work. But I really do feel that in this increasing instability, we're going to need more creative, adaptive pedagogies and modalities. There are things that are going to come that I can't even imagine for sure. But certainly mobile learning is AI. I, I'm i like, people think I'm probably an early adopter of things. I'm kind of old fashioned in that I haven't even really dipped my toes into those, right? Yeah, yeah. So I'm sure those are going to bring some interesting changes, you know, good, both good and bad that we'll need to be paying attention to. Yeah. But I think the heart of it goes to preparing for this instability, hopefully addressing the root of that instability. I hope we see more folks addressing climate action. That's, you know, a little bug in folks' ears that that's something I have on my radar and I'm working on. And just to stay the course, online learning is important. It makes a huge difference for access and success for students and faculty. And, you know, just, it's okay to um, mute uh, some of that noise and keep doing your good work.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Work on your filters. But then also realize that <laughs> leaning in as a maker, once you understand the tools that are available online, it's a big opportunity and it is an opportunity. You know, another trend we've talked about is the great resignation. And there is some some real talent leaving the world of teaching in particular, you know, before you fully ed- exit education, you know, explore other opportunities. Also, if you haven't taught online or thought about the opportunities around that, it is a time to kind of hone those skills to stay relevant much in the way that that you've been able to do Karen and then also how do you stay motivated where do you look for inspiration is always something that i i ask for folks and it sounds like you are doing you know hard emotional work lots of times in addition to, you know teaching is in fact hard emotional work but teaching about trauma and teaching folks who are going through all this upheaval in these challenging times is emotional work where do you look for inspiration? How do you stay stay motivated and charged up?
1: So motivation, inspiration, great question. Before I get to that, I want to mention, when I left my full-time in-person job, that was in 2012, I was teaching part-time online as an adjunct, but I left that role and I was looking, this is 2012, so 10 years ago, I was looking for, you know, remote work. I really loved being home. I had a little one at home. There was nothing out there the the job i could find when i would search for remote work was mystery shoppers the people right. who go into stores that was what was considered remote work at that time and i'm exaggerating probably a little bit but but not a lot there was yeah. there was not nothing out there the the number of remote positions full time positions with benefits many of them that i have seen in the past you know 6 months but all really the past month is blowing my mind. Mm-hmm. Hundreds being posted each day. Almost so many that you don't even know like you really got to zone in on what you're looking for in a workplace. So, for folks interested in that transition, I would just say, you know, there's a lot of opportunity out there to explore. So that's the good thing in the win column. Motive <laughs> motivation and inspiration. Wow. I you know, I don't I don't have any easy answers there. I I was somebody just like I taught online and worked online before the pandemic, I was somebody who was doing a lot of, you know, that personal development work for many years before the pandemic. Um, I'm kind of now grateful for that, that I've had those hard times before the pandemic. So things like, even when I don't want to go to meet with my therapist and talk about my feelings, I make sure I prioritize that. Little things like writing in my journal every morning and just exercising, don't always feel like doing it always feel better after I do it. Connecting with people, for me, that means mostly online. Really, really important. My very wise therapist reminds me, and this is something I've learned in other recovery spaces as well, is to focus on what I can do. It's very easy, especially when we start doom scrolling. I do way too much of that. There are so many things that we can't control, and it's really easy to feel that sense of hopelessness and helplessness. And for me, it's about always trying to zone back in on the little things, what what we can do. So if that means taking time off of social media or hugging my dog, it's those little things that help ground me and keep me keep me moving forward.
0: Fantastic stuff. Karen Costa is at Karen Ray Costa on Twitter. The website is 100faculty.com really enjoyed this conversation, Karen.
1: Thank you so much. And you know, everyone listening, take care, hang in there.
0: All right. We'll be back again soon. If you like what you're hearing, write us a review, subscribe, tell your friends. This is Trending in Education.